You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. So open up your Bibles tonight to the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms. We spent last Shabbat, it's the first time I've actually done it, spent the entire message giving an overview of the book we were going to tackle. Usually I just give a 15-minute overview and then we're right into the book, but it actually is such a deep and rich book, it took me an entire message to get through it. And you can take a look at that on our YouTube page, that's Tree of Life Live from San Diego. Go ahead and mark that YouTube URL and click to subscribe uh, to that, and you'll be notified when new videos pop up on there, as well as our Facebook page. We live stream over Facebook, and we spent an incredible amount of time last week giving an overview. We wanted to open up tonight with our series, Summertime in the Psalms, Summer in the Psalms. Let's open in chapter one of the book of Psalms. Book number one, you recall from last Shabbat, encompasses Psalms 1 through 41. Probably the earliest collection of Psalms is this book number one. And one might think of the book as what many have called, quote, the book of personal experience. Since there's so much of that going on in Psalms chapter 1 through 41, it has been called, quote, largely a book of testimonies. And so book one opens up tonight with two Psalms Without headings, which we're going to look at tonight, judging from their general character, it would appear that they were uh, prefixed to the book of Psalms with the specific purpose of emphasizing certain fundamentals that are important in approaching the book of Psalms. And so these first two Psalms that we're going to look at right now, they touch on law, they touch on prophecy. These are both fundamental, by the way, to the spiritual life of our people Israel. Right? One lays the foundation, the law, and the other prophecy builds on what is already then laid. And so Psalm 1 can rightly be said to exemplify the proper attitude toward the law of the Lord. Psalm chapter 2 gives the essence of prophecy and indicates what place that prophecy plays in the life of Israel. And so the two Psalms are united by the use of the Hebrew term ashrei, which means happy. At the beginning of the first verse of chapter 1 and the last verse in chapter 2. We see that this opening psalm is summarizing here the two paths of life for people that are open to people. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, right? The psalm contrasts the righteous person who, because of his or her behavior, experiences blessings in life. We all want to experience blessings in life. With the unrighteous, it's contrasted to whose ungodly character and conduct yields the fruit of sorrow, yields the fruit of destruction. So let's begin reading the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Happy Ashrei is the one who has not walked in the advice of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Torah of Adonai. And in his Torah, on his teaching, he meditates day and and night. He will be like a planted tree over streams of water 
producing its fruit during its season. Its leaf never droops, but in all he does, he succeeds. The wicked are not so, for they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand during the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Adonai knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And so we see that Psalm chapter 1 opens up with this stark contrast between those who in their lives have reverence for the Lord and those who don't. And so the contrast is evident in daily lifestyle and in ultimate destiny. The Psalms, this psalm shows us that to live a happy life, we must build our lives on the Lord and His Word. How many of you know things can never satisfy us? Amen. Ever. Only God can. Your new iPhone 13 cannot satisfy you. Even relationships cannot ultimately satisfy apart from God. Pursuing pleasure, pursuing self-fulfillment, pursuing self-centered goals cannot and will not satisfy. No, only a life built on God and obedience to his word that will produce true happiness. And that's what this psalm declares. I think it's significant that this psalmist begins by telling us some things that the happy person does not do. Your happiness, both now and in eternity, depends upon your choice of one of two ways. Choosing one way means what? Rejecting the other way. And so the psalm begins with that which the happy person must reject. If you want to be happy, you've got to reject some things. True happiness is not found in a life that leaves God out. The psalmist here shows us three ways it's possible to do that, though, to leave God out of our lives. We leave him out by walking in the counsel of the wicked, walking in the advice of the wicked. How can we discern the counsel of the wicked? How can we discern the advice of the wicked from the wisdom of God? Well, let me suggest to you five tests. Number one, the counsel of the wicked, the advice of the wicked, denies the sufficiency of scriptures for dealing with the problems, every problem of the soul. Every problem of the soul. The Bible claims to be adequate to equip the believer for, quote, every good work. Number two, the counsel of the wicked, the advice of the wicked, exalts the pride of mankind and takes away from the glory of God. Exalts man, puts down the glory of God. Number three, the counsel of the wicked denies or minimizes the need for the tree of sacrifice of the Messiah. Why? By asserting either the basic that man is good or by downplaying the extent or the impact of Adam and Eve's fall. That's found in the advice and the counsel of the wicked, my friends. Number four, the counsel of the wicked denies God's moral absolutes and substitutes human goodness. And finally, number five, the counsel of the wicked focuses on pleasing self rather than on pleasing God and others. Secondly, we leave God out 
of our lives by standing, the Bible says here, in the path on the path of sinners. To stand on the path in the path of sinners means involvement with sinners in their sinful behavior. On the one hand, the Bible talks about, Rabbi Shaul says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And so if you run with worldly people in their godless way of life, what happens? We're wrongly influenced by them, right? On the other hand, we're not supposed to cut ourselves off from completely from sinners. Rather, our objective with them changes. Whereas before we associated with sinners as one that were joining in on their evil deeds, now, as followers of Yeshua, we associate with them as sinners, with them as a sinner saved by God's grace, to seek to bring them to Teshuva, to bring them back to repentance and back to faith in their Messiah. And finally, we leave God out, the psalmist writes here, by sitting in the seat of scoffers. Maybe you've got a scoffer in your life. Scoffers think they know more than God. <laughs> They're too smart to believe in the Bible. They don't want God interfering in their sinful lifestyles. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. The negative is not enough in and of itself, he says, to produce happiness. He goes on to show on a positive note that, number two, true happiness is found in a life built on God and a life built on his word. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. There is a responsibility in verse 2 and a result in verse 3 that the psalmist describes here. Let's talk about first the responsibility in verse 2. To delight in and haga or to meditate on God's word continually. You see, by placing a reference to Torah at the beginning of the Psalter, the centrality of the Torah, presumably already considered authoritative by the time the Psalter the Psalter was compiled, is now reinforced in the reader. Now, what does it mean to delight in the Torah? What does it mean to delight in the teaching of God's Word? Have you noticed, and many of you in this room have, you've experienced this, when a young man delights in a woman, what does he do? He rearranges all of his priorities so that suddenly he has plenty of time to spend with her. Remember, when I was... Uh, beginning to date Darcy, she was living in Irvine, California. I was here in San Diego. I was working for an, a CPA firm at the time, and man, I, I'd get off work at 5. I'd hit that Orange County traffic. I'd get up there by 7.30 in Orange County, and we'd go to dinner, and we'd do, you know, just date, and by about 11, I'm back on the road, get home about 1.00 get up at about five to go to work. And man, I, we would do this like two, three times a week. I would do this anyway. And I wasn't doing it because I had to do it. I wanted to do it. Nothing interferes with his time with the object of his delight. How many of you young men can relate to that? Right? Now let me ask you a question. Do you delight, do I delight in God's word in that sense? In that sense. Do we make time to spend in the word because we delight in it? Or has it become a duty? The Bible is God's love letter to you. 
You're reading the counsel, my friends, of a loving, all-wise, heavenly Father as to how you should live. His commandments are for your good and for your blessing. It should be no more a duty in our lives to spend time in the Word of God than it is for a young man to spend time with an attractive woman. We are responsible not only to delight in God's Word, but also the Bible says you're to do what? To meditate on it continually. In the Scriptures, meditation is often equivalent to the term study. To meditate means to think about what the Word says. How does the Word apply to all of your life? Meditation is to reading what digestion is to eating, chewing on it. Letting it become part of you. I finished up this week uh, with the notes and part of a Messianic Bible study Bible project from Zondervan that will be out in a few years. And I was so happy with myself because I finally finished the notes and it's 46 pages just on 1 Samuel. And I looked at the requirement of the words and I've got to cut this thing down by two-thirds now which is going to be tougher than writing the notes themselves. That's the responsibility, to delight in the word of God. Number two, the result. Look at verse three again. What's the result of all this? A fruitful, prosperous life. The psalmist describes the person who delights in God's word metaphorically as a tree planted by streams of water. I know you can't see this, but those of you who have a Tree of Life version Bible, uh, in Psalms 1, there's an incredible depiction of this right next to Psalm chapter 1, this drawing. This is a tree that has been deliberately cultivated, surrounded by those canals and streams so that its roots have a continual supply of water. And I see this in that those who faithfully pursue a deeper relationship with and a better understanding of the, God, of the Word of God will find guidance from the Holy Spirit. This is a tree that is solid and able to withhold, withstand stru, uh, storms and droughts. It is fruitful. It has continued evidence of vitality and life. It leaves its leaves do not wither. Are you following with me? Now, we know the most important part of a tree is what? It's hidden root system, right? Because it's drawing up nourishment. It's drawing up water that feeds the tree. My friends, without a healthy root system, a tree will die. And without a healthy root system, a believer will wilt. By the way, one's fruit will appear, the Bible says, at the proper time, not necessarily immediate. And one's prosperity is from God's viewpoint, not necessarily from the world's viewpoint, okay? But perhaps if you're honest with, uh, with God tonight, you'd admit that you, you really truly question the truthfulness of Psalms chapter 1. So far, you may know people in your lives who totally leave God out of their lives, who seem to be genuinely happy, seem to be prosperous. They seem to have good marriages, seem to have a great family, happy family. They seem to be doing fine, just fine without God. 
And you may know others who are godly people who build their lives on God and on his word, and yet they are hit week after week, day after day with adversity and difficulties. What about that? Well, the psalmist goes on to show that true happiness is found in a life that takes eternity into account. That's the key. In verses 4 through 6, God's view takes eternity into account and says, those who leave me out of their lives, the psalmist says, what's that like? It's like they're chaff. What's chaff? Chaff is the worthless husk around a head of grain, right? Very light in weight, blows away in that winnowing process. Here is their character. Without substance and easily carried away. The wicked, who is that? Those who have little regard for the Lord, little regard for the word of God. They're just living their lives to satisfy their passions. They'll not stand in the judgment that psalmist writes here, which means they're not going to even have a leg to stand on. Their case will not even be held up in God's court. My friends, in the future, there's going to be a winnowing judgment of people in which Adonai is going to separate the righteous from the wicked. That's very clear. Matthew chapter 13 tells us this. The instrument of the judgment, though, that will determine the ultimate fate of these two basic kinds of people is God's knowledge of them. Whether he knows us or not. My friends, we all must stand before the Lord. If we take God and eternity out of the picture, all you are, listen, this is what's outside of these walls for the most part. All you are outside of these walls for the most part, non-believers walking not with God, all they are in their is an accident, the chance product of random chance. Your, their birth was an accident. Their death was, will be an accident. All they are is an accident suspended between two accidents. There's no happiness in that view. But that's the view without God. This whole psalm here is a solemn warning to the reader that the reader should live his or her life in view of the ultimate judgment of God. Let's go on to the next psalm which some rabbinic traditions see as actually a continuation of Psalm chapter 1. is Psalm 1 dealt with two ways that individuals may follow. Psalm 2 deals with two ways that nations may follow. Psalm 1, as we've seen, dealt with what? The blessed man or woman. Psalm 2 deals with the rebellious man or woman. And at the same time, the differences in their tone, in their style, in their theme of these two psalms outweigh their other similarities, suggesting that the medieval tradition, which sees them as separate psalms, is the correct assumption. Its original context, though, is obscure. It may refer to a war as we're going to open it up here, against Judah or be part of a ritual imagining such a war. But I see it here as we're going to go through it as a royal psalm used to celebrate the coronation of a new king in that David, who Acts 4.25 says is the author of Psalm 2, exhorted the pagan nations surrounding Israel to forsake their efforts to oppose Adonai and his anointed king. David urges them, Submit to the authority of the Son, capital S, whom Adonai has ordained to rule them. Now, 
We find that the Lord Yeshua told his Talmudim, his disciples, after his resurrection, that the Psalms had spoken about him. Quote, everything written concerning me in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we're going to look at a shocking Psalm next week. In his last words, David said that the Messiah was his favorite subject in the Psalms. 2 Samuel 23.1 says that. In Psalm 2, David introduces us here to God's anointed, which in Hebrew is Mashiach, translated into English as Messiah. The New Covenant quotes or alludes to this psalm six times. Every time it applies these words to Messiah. And so this psalm has been classified as Messianic. Now, it should be noted that within the messianic portions of individual psalms, like Psalm 2, some passages refer exclusively to Messiah, while others seem to also address a situation faced by the human author. Now, before we begin looking at Psalm 2, we need to first ask ourselves a couple of pointed questions. Number one, how should we view this present world chaos? Should we sink into depression and despair? When the president just got COVID again today for the second time in a week? Should we ignore the world? Should we ignore the world's news ostrich style? Psalm 2 gives us an answer, my friends. In it, the author, King David, again, Acts 4.25 says he's the author of this psalm, views the rebellion of the nations against God. He looks at the chaos of the world seen in his day and says that though the nations have rebelled against God, listen, friends, although the nations have rebelled against God, God is on the throne, he is sovereign, and we must thus submit to him while there's still time. Psalm 2 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant. The psalmist is saying three things, and I want to examine these three thoughts. Number one, look with me at verse one. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples mutter vanity? Another English translation says, why are the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of earth set themselves up and rulers conspire together against Adonai and against his anointed one. Let's rip their chains apart and throw their ropes off us, they say. The nations have rebelled against God, right? So to understand this psalm, we must realize on one level it's applying here to King David. Thus on one level, verses 1, 2, and 3 here refer to those rebel kings against David. Their attempts to shake off David's rule over them. But it's obvious here that the psalm goes way beyond David's experience, as we're going to see, especially as this passage was cited by the early Messianic community, again, in that Acts 4 passage. Clarifying that the anointed in this passage is intended as a specific predictive reference to Yeshua himself. And so writing under the inspiration of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, David writes this psalm not only about himself, but in a deeper and a more complete way about Messiah Yeshua. Isn't that incredible? Thus, just as these kings were rebelling against King David, so all men have rebelled against King Yeshua. 
Where is Adonai in all of this rebellion? Did he go to sleep? Has he lost control? No. The psalmist goes on to show that even though the nations have rebelled against Adonai, God is sovereign. Read it with me. Verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. Adonai mocks them. So he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. I have set up my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the decree of Adonai. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the far reaches of the earth as your possession. You shall break the nations with an iron scepter. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's jar. God is on the throne. He is sovereign. David envisions God as ruling over all, sitting relaxed on his throne in heaven. He's not having risen from it in any sort of distress or in an angry way. Not at all threatened. He's not at all worried about the vain schemes of the rebellious kings of the nations. We have to get this into our spirits. He's laughing, metaphorically, at their futility. This is the only place in the word of God where the writer describes Adonai as laughing. God's laughter shows the folly, it's crazy, of rebelling against him. God laughs at that. It shows us that, number one, God has a calm assurance in the face of man's rebellion. Mighty men rise up, proudly think they're so great, so powerful, right? We were talking about this earlier tonight. The mighty Nebuchadnezzar, he, he was the greatest ruler on the earth at his time. He grew proud. Remember that? He grew He attributed the greatness to himself. And what did God do? He was relaxed. God humbled him with a very strange disease. It was like the monkeypox of his generation. (laughs) That he lived in the fields and he ate grass like a beast. Until he learned, quote, the most high is sovereign over the realm of mankind and gives it to whoever he wishes. That's not a great way to learn a lesson from the Lord. I'd rather go the easy route. Do you know that God's not worried about man's rebellion against him? He's not sitting on the edge of heaven, biting his fingernails, and saying, what am I going to do? He lets us go on for quite a while in our rebellion, doesn't he? But then his anger, then his judgment will come and man's proud plans will then fold and come to nada. Notice that because Adonai has installed his king on the throne of Israel, any rebellion against David here locally, contextually, would prove futile ultimately. Adonai's earthly throne, Zion. It's the name of the Canaanite city built on Mount Moriah, which David conquered. It's known by its other name, Jerusalem. The psalmist goes on here in Psalm 2 to show us that, number one, two, God has a predetermined plan, though, to deal with our rebellion. 
Now, contextually, in the psalm, in verses 7, 8, and 9 that we read, defeating enemies with a scepter, which was originally like a club-like weapon in war, was a common image for ancient Near Eastern kings, dashing them in pieces like a potter's jar, in the words of the psalmist, refers to Egyptian kings locally here who attempted to exert control over their foreign kings beyond their normal sphere of military control by inscribing their names as curses on pottery jars and then smashing the jars as an invocation of curse. At the same time, interestingly enough, when we read this, no earthly king was ever promised authority over all the nations as an inheritance. That's why the psalm's messianic. It goes beyond David here. This was a promise only fulfilled in the Messiah King Yeshua, Zechariah 9.10. And so this predetermined plan centers on the person and power of God's Messiah, his anointed one, whom Adonai sent into the world to pay the penalty for our rebellion. Yeshua died according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of Adonai at the hands of godless men. But... Adonai then what? Raised Yeshua from the dead. He ascended to heaven where he's now waiting to return with power to crush all opposition and to reign in righteousness. That is Adonai's plan for dealing with rebellious humans and with Hasatan and with his forces. Do you see? That's very different from the way that we operate in our lives. We're very stressed out that somehow God's on the potty. God's asleep. He doesn't know what's going on. And it's all up to us. Yes, God uses us and he wants to use us. But make no mistake about it. He's on his throne. He's mocking. He's laughing. He's in control. He's in control. Doesn't seem like he's in control. Doesn't seem like that. But how do we respond to the fact that he really is in control? Number three, we must submit to him and his anointed while there's still time. So now, O kings, verse 10, be wise. Oh, we could say this and pray this over our leaders, can't we, in this state? Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Adonai with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Gavin Newsom, kiss the sun. Lest he become angry and you perish along your way, since his wrath may flare up suddenly, happy is everyone taking refuge in him. You see, in the day of David, in view of this inevitability, really, of the judgment for rebellion, he exhorts all the nations around him to submit before the wrath of the great king led him, Adonai, to smite them. And so the leaders of this nation, David's imploring them, the leaders of these nations would be wise to bow in submission, not only to David, but what's more important here, to the king behind David in heaven. The author David has no desire to see humans suffer. Listen, we don't want to see godless leaders suffer. We want them to kiss the sun. He's not gloating over the destruction of his foes. He's merely expressing, though in strong terms, the certainty of the victory of the cause of the Lord. The rebellious nations should respond like the righteous by worshiping, serving, reverentially, fearing, rejoicing, and trembling before the Lord. You see, David and the Son of God 
enjoy very close association in this entire Psalm chapter 2. Their wrath and their pleasure are different only in the spheres in which they operate. David locally and Yeshua universally. The psalm reveals that the nations will serve Adonai as they serve the king in Israel's day. April, if you'd come up. Now, this is the first of many references in the psalms to taking refuge in the Lord. Adonai does provide refuge for those who seek him. But he does not hide away safely from all the storms of life those who would escape them. My friends, you cannot find peace and safety anywhere in the world. Only in Messiah. World chaos and war are only going to increase as his coming draws near. It's a given. So if we can't escape it, what can we do? The last line of the psalm is God's gracious invitation. Happy is everyone taking refuge in him. Don't run from God tonight. Run to the Lord. As we see chaos increasing in our world, we can be truly happy and blessed by taking refuge in our God. The early body of the Messiah took refuge in him by praying this psalm, it says, as they faced persecution. That's Acts 4. And so in our troubled times, when it looks as if the enemy is winning, we can, we should, and we will do the same. Spend time in these psalms over the next eight sessions. They're going to really bless you. Ibarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yishma Adonai panavelecha v'yasem alecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you this night. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, all of us who are with him to the end said amen. Be amen. Shavua Tov, a good week. We'll see you out for some ice cream. Shalom, shalom. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>